That was fun. Good morning, everybody. How are you doing today? I'm trying to find scripture that I should have marked for the last two hours and didn't. Oh, it's good to see you guys. It is good to see. It's a good day to be in the house of the Lord. What a fun time of worship. We could just go home full and that was good. I'm excited to share what the Lord's laid on my heart, but that was a really good time of worship. Good morning, welcome. Uh, I want to say thank you to Valerie for sharing the word two weeks ago, and uh, thanks to Dan, he's not here, but thank you for taking the time to share with us last week a little about the ministry that they're going to be involved in, as well as what the Lord quickened in his heart for us. Uh, What I've got this morning actually fits really well following what Dan shared last week. Uh, It kind of dovetails into it. Um those of you that, I'm not a carpenter by any stretch of anyone's imagination, but a dovetail joint is a really strong joint. I am aware of that. And I love that picture of a message dovetailing together, fitting together, being shaped uh, by the Holy Spirit to fit together for a specific purpose and for strength. It's fun to be a part of a family that we have the freedom to listen to the Holy Spirit uh, in the songs that we sing and the words that we speak during worship, the opportunities that we take. Tom, thank you for that. We're my family is very blessed by everybody in this body, not just in those instances, but all throughout the last year and the last years. Ministry's not super easy all the time, um, and that's kind of, it's some of what we're going to talk about a little bit this morning. Um, the last, last week, and I mentioned this at the end of the teaching, uh, Dan shared seven, seven points I'm going to go over those points, and we're going to kind of pivot off of some of that. Uh, it just really fit with what the Lord had laid on my heart. So number one, he talked about the calling of the Lord on our lives, the, the calling that he places on our lives for specific things. Sometimes they're big things, sometimes they're small things, but that calling will use the gifts and talents and passions that God has given us. Number two, it will cost us something. Number three, it may take longer and look different than anticipated. Can I get an Amen. Uh, it will be bigger than just you or just me. It will involve others. God's call is always corporate. It always involves other people, touches other people's lives, encourages people. It will require, number five, it will require perseverance, which fits with the third one of taking longer and looking different. It will require perseverance. We gotta pace ourselves. Number six, which this fits with four, it will encourage and challenge others. Sometimes seeing somebody stepping out in faith quicken something on the inside of us and we step out in faith and do whatever the Lord's put on our heart. And number seven, it will be worth it. Whatever God's called us to, if we put our whole heart into it at the end of our lives or the end of the thing, whatever that thing is, it will be worth it. There's a myth uh, that just seems to dominate Christianity and I keep bumping into this myth that that if a thing, whatever the thing is, if it is for a season, and then isn't for a season, it's invalid or pointless. If a thing happens, the Lord lays something on your heart, and you step out in faith and do it, and then 10, 15, 20 years go by, and that thing, season is finished. Just, sometimes it's God's design by, for it to be finished. Sometimes it's the hooks and the crooks of the world that cause it to not function anymore. And the temptation is for that season to be rendered void. 
So any point, if it was a game, any point scored during that first quarter, well, that first quarter's over, so board's wiped clean. That's not how it works. See, the Lord is always working. There's different revelations throughout church history. There's different uh, giftings that were activated. There's different ministries that have been started. There's, and some of them are continuing and some of them aren't anymore. Some of them we don't even know the names of, and that's okay. And you know, there's a tremendous freedom that comes, one of the biggest things I think the enemy brings against us when we've got something on our heart, the Lord calls us to do a new thing, calls us out of Ur, of the Chaldeans, into the promised land, whatever that's, you know, it's Christian speak, it's biblical, it's King James language for God calls you from where you are to where he wants you to be. One of the things that I feel like the, the enemy brings, and sometimes it's just ourselves, I think sometimes we give Satan a lot of credit when sometimes it's just us. But one of the big things is like, what about when nobody wants to help with it anymore? Like we could start this, we could start a, a ministry of, you name it. But then what, and right now we got this whole room of people, everybody wants to help, but like what if, what if somebody gets tired of it and they quit? Like what if we run out of money? That's a big one. What if, what if I just get tired? Or what if I get too busy? Or what if I get burned out? Or what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? What if we start this grace camp? What if the Lord quickens this church camp for kids teaching the gospel of grace to them? And then what if four or five years into it, what if somebody doesn't want to come anymore? Or what if, like, what if, what if, what if, what if? And there's a freedom that comes when it's like, I'm going to let the Lord manage the seasons. And the increase is always from him. We can plant seeds and we can be there to harvest but the increase is not on us. Thank you, Jesus, we can breathe a little bit now. We can try something. Anybody ever felt like I started a business five years, six years ago, and it was like, what if I don't wanna do it in 10 years? And my wife's like, you could do something else. Like, that seems too simple. That's not, there's no way, no, like you could do something different. You've done something different before. You can do, this like, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, I don't know what I was thinking. I could do something different. It's like, gives us the courage sometimes. It takes the pressure away. So anyways, um, so nobody, I'm going to read a couple scriptures. Uh, if you got your Bibles, we're going to turn to Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. We're going to look at a few different little verses here to kind of get us started here. Uh, in Mark chapter 3, this is kind of the beginning of Jesus' ministry. I've been reading through Mark lately and seeing little, I, I enjoy Mark. I enjoy each of the Gospels for different reasons, but I've been spending a little bit of time. As many of you know, one of my favorite chapters is the next one, Mark 4, and I almost grabbed some stuff out of Mark 4, but you guys have all, we've done Mark 4 <laughs> for months before. So we're just going to stick a little bit in Mark 3 here. Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. It says, and he, being Jesus, and he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. This is problematic for Jesus. He wasn't into withered hands. So they watched him, they being the Pharisees, the chief priests, the religious leaders. They watched him closely. Do you think, we get to that point when I was reading this the other night, I was like, I feel like if you thought that was the Messiah, we'd be watching Jesus, what's he gonna do? Like with a positive anticipation. They were watching Jesus like, what's he about to do? He's gonna heal that guy, isn't he? And it blows my mind that you can get to a place where this is the mindset. It's like, we're going to watch him. And if he so much as heals that guy, you'll see where it goes from here. That was their perspective. They watched him closely, comma, 
whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Now, if the Pharisees had had the presence of mind, presence of spirit to stick a pin in that thought and really like zoom out, what's the 30,000 view of this? This is not what I'm preaching on this particular thing, but I just, reading through this, it's like, what are we doing? We're watching this guy and we're gonna accuse him if he makes a man's withered hand that we've never seen healed anything like this and he heals him, we're gonna accuse him. This is concerning. If we find ourselves there, it's like, oh, heavens, that's concerning. So he said to the man with the withered hand, step forward. Jesus is not intimidated by these fellas. Verse four, then he said to them, so he tells the guy, step forward here. It's like, we're gonna have an object lesson and your hand is gonna be the object. Then he said to them, the religious leaders, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? Is it lawful? He is aware of what's going on in their hearts through the spirit and he draws them out. It's like, so, just to be clear, what I'm about to do, is it lawful or not? He looked around at them with anger. He was not impressed. Being grieved by the hardness of their hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored as whole as the others. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. These guys were the religious elites. They were the best of the best. They'd done it all. They were the authorities on things of scripture and things of faith. They were the authority. Jesus had done some teaching. There had been, I mean, he was already on their radar. But I just, look at this picture. Jesus is in the synagogue, which he's here to preach salvation and freedom to the captives, bringing the new covenant, bringing the gospel. He's going to become and fulfill the old covenant and enact the new covenant. You would think this kind of ministry, like it's gonna take place in the synagogue. They didn't have churches like we have today. They had synagogue, like, I feel like in the natural, we would look at that like you don't wanna really make these guys mad. You don't wanna upset these guys. You could need things, resources from these guys. It's like you're a carpenter, not a somebody. These guys are somebodies. So couldn't he have done this miracle, like said, why don't, like let's meet tomorrow. We could do the miracle tomorrow and then we wouldn't upset anybody. He'd still have a healed hand and we could do it a different day. Let's succumb to the pressure of the religious elites to change what he was going to do to fit their narrative. Has anybody ever felt that kind of stuff? We could change it. What if we made it look what if we just changed it? Because it's like what we could upset the religious elites. But you see, Jesus knew why he was on earth, and the commissioning he had from heaven was weightier, it was heavier than the disapproval of a few religious folks. What the Lord had commissioned him to do. See, this was part of Jesus' ministry. There's a point John talks about at the end of his gospel that the purpose of all these miracles, he wanted to make clear to everyone that he was the Messiah. This was important, that he performed these miracles. When the sick came to him, he performed the miracle. Stretch out, stretch out his hand. You see Jesus bump up next to this. In the beginning of this, you see, so they watched him closely. And he knew they were watching him closely. He engages with this for a little bit, 
He addresses it, and then he moves on and does his thing. We see a similar thing in Galatians chapter 1. You see, we're going to look at, we're going to cherry pick a few verses, which is taking them out of context and with it goes against everything that we, but there's a purpose for what I'm going to do here, okay? The letter to the church at Galatia starts out, this is just some of Paul's statements throughout the first chapter that I want to look at. We're not going to make like arguments with these that are going to violate the context of scripture, okay? Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle, in parentheses, he writes, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Stating up front, before they read anything further, he wants them to know, I'm, I don't have my title from men. I haven't sought men's approval. I've been given this title by God. Verse 10, you see, for do I now persuade men or God? Do I seek to please men? Question mark. For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Another, just a, a glimpse. He's not in this for the approval of man. The Galatians or any other man. He's laying it out. Just so you know, he's going to bring some correction. He's bringing strong correction to the church at Galatia. They had wandered into really some double-minded, double-standard stuff, and he just wants to lay out in front of them, in case you think I'm going to be dissuaded by your disapproval, you didn't appoint me, no man appointed me, I've been made an apostle by Jesus. You think I'm trying to please men? I wouldn't be a bondservant to Jesus if I was trying to please men. Verse 10. So then we skip down here to verses 15 through 17. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb, called me through his grace, verse 16, to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. What does he say? I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. In verse 16, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. He did not go looking for man's approval. Paul was commissioned by the Lord personally, but we see in this first chapter of Galatians, we see a little glimpse that even Paul, commissioned by the Lord, knocked off his donkey, like pretty arrested attention, his attention was arrested pretty immediately and drastically. Even he, it, it entered his mind to seek the approval of men. You see it right there. It's, I, I, you know he thought about it if he was going to write this. I didn't seek the approval of men right away. I didn't go to flesh and blood and say, what do you guys think about this? You see, this is an, I don't even know who said this quote. I tried to look it up and I couldn't find it anywhere. Maybe it's just in my head that it's an old quote, but I've heard it many times. No one has ever complied themselves into the history books. Nobody has ever just like, I, we just want to fit in. When this life on earth is over, our thoughts don't often or ever drift towards, I really hope that I fit in enough that no one will remember me. I just hope to not be remembered. We spend our entire lives from childhood to old age often striving to fit in. I just want to fit in. I just want to fit in. Trying not to be the one person doing something different. Anybody ever, we're, I'm going to try and make a mental note that that's where I'm at in this. Have you ever been, I mean, you, you've heard these discussions. This is the rationale I've heard for being a parent. We bump into this all the time. Well, you don't want them to stick out. 
Well, you don't want, you know, why, are you, why, why did you get that thing for your kid? Well, you know, they're friends all. Well, it's like social media. Well, how are they going to connect with their friends? Like, they got to fit in. We got to fit in. Like, well, you're not going to cut their hair weird. Like, you want them to fit in. We don't want to send them to church camp by themselves. We want them to go with friends and fit in. We want conformity. We, we spend our lives trying to conform. No one's ever conformed or complied themselves into the history books. What's interesting is in the last moments of our life, if we get last moments, we hope someone remembers us. I hope to be remembered. For what? You spent 85 years trying to not be noticed and now you hope somebody remembers that? We look just like everybody else. It's like one of a thousand sheep. I hope my wool stands out, but not too much. We're not going to. Think about this. Possibly the most dangerous metric for us to use in measuring our steps of faith. Hear me, church. Possibly, if not the most dangerous metric, measuring system for us to use in measuring our steps of faith is to look to the left and the right and see where everyone else is in comparison to where we are. This metric is everywhere. Social, family, business, church, government, you name it, athletics. Where's everybody else at? Where's everybody else at? Do we have, do you have the new app? Whatever the new app is. I have no idea what the new app is, but do you have it? Well, so-and-so has it. Well, then we, what, immediately we're wired to like, well, I should get that. We get on our little, and we get that app. Why? Well, I don't know. Joe's got it. Steve's got it. Tom's got it. So why do I have it? Well, they have it. Well, that's not a reason. That's not a reason at all. I stand to gain nothing, rather lose things, but everybody else has it. And so we strive, where's everybody else at? What kind of cars do we drive? Well, I don't know. Like, there's this myth out there. I'm going to just... There's a myth that a vehicle after 100,000 miles is considered a beater. I, don't, I have only owned one vehicle that had less than 100,000 miles. But it's really difficult. It's like everybody else, well, they're getting new cars. I should probably get a new car. Well, I don't think we can afford it, honey. Oh, I know, but the Jones have one. I should get a new car. Like every area of our life, well, we should mow the lawn. Why? The neighbor across the road mowed the lawn. That's a good reason. You know what we should do is announcements before worship. That's what every other church does. Then we should sing a few songs. That's what every other church does. Then we should have a sermon about 45 minutes. That's what every other church does. And if we want to take people from other churches, which is the church's goal, if we want to take people from other churches, we got to do what the other churches are doing just a little bit better. This met, We're looking left and right. Like, where's everybody? We're all running. It's like, we're doing okay. We're never going to win like this. We're going to cross the finish line with the 10 people that are in 20th to 30th place. The ones who win the race are the ones who fix their eyes on the prize and run like Sam Hill. And they don't care who's around them. We're just running. We're looking this way. Somebody might be right here, but we're focused this way. As soon as we look this way, we're slowing down. Interestingly enough, our heads are wider this way than they are this way. There's more wind resistance. We start slowing down like this. We tend to take this old saying that there's safety in numbers to mean we should always be with the crowd. Just remember, it was crowd rule that crucified the Lord of glory. 
often the call of our lives, now we're ready for the sermon, often the call of the Lord on our lives looks different. It's not status quo. It's not what everybody else is doing. You don't see a lot of the Lord calling people. It's like, just fit in. Just do what everybody else has done. In fact, even when the Lord himself on this earth, in the flesh, called disciples. He didn't call one disciple that would have fit the religious elites. Eventually, you see him draw Paul in, who was previously a religious elite, but while Jesus was here ministering in the flesh, he called a bunch of misfits. Like, I'm gonna build my church with these guys. I don't even know if you can hold them together for three years. You can't, they ditched you. In the moment, you needed them most. And you see Jesus is like, I'll get them. I'll get him when I'm back. I'll come back. So he comes back and he fixes him breakfast and he calls him again. He says, I got something for you. I want you to feed my sheep. If you look through scripture, often the call of the Lord on our lives looks different. Look at Noah. It's about as weird as it gets. I mean, it's like, it was not raining then. And he's building a boat, not a small boat, not like something you could disguise Plant some shrubs. We'll build the boat behind the shrubs. No, we're going to build this where everybody can see. And it's such a long project, we're going to have about 100 years for everybody to come by and pick fun at you. Okay, I'll build a boat. Abraham. Now, Abraham didn't follow it perfectly. He was supposed to go by himself, and he went with people. But the Lord still used him mightily to lay the groundwork for the covenant that we are now in. Abraham was weird. That doesn't, he didn't fit. He should have been trying to conquer empires. Moses. My goodness, look at Moses. He was as misfit as they come. He was an Israelite, baby, raised in Pharaoh's house, tried to start an uprising, got tossed out of Egypt, and the Lord's like, I think I'm going to use you. Moses himself was like, I don't think that's a good idea. I think you should find somebody else. I can't speak very good. I don't think I should be the guy. And the Lord's like, you are the guy. I made you. I'll fix your mouth. In a moment, he was just frustrated. He's like, didn't I build you? I can fix whatever's wrong here. Just go. The judges, you look, read through the book of Judges, and it's like, there was no status quos used. It's like, there's no, we can't do status, we gotta have, it's strange, it's off. The people that were willing to stand out, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Daniel, the list goes on. All through scripture we see the, Lord, the Lord's call on our lives is often something different than what everyone else is doing. We can get to the point where we consider others' opinions, hear this, if you're gonna hear one little paragraph, hear this. We can get to the point where we consider others' opinions of our decisions so much so that it yields a harvest of inactivity or indecision. <clears throat> still water, water not moving, is stagnant and grows all sorts of bacteria and not great things. But you know, we have been filled with living water. Living water that flows. Water that flows stays clean and pure. 
We must never get to the point where we consider others' opinions of our decisions to the degree that it yields a harvest of inactivity or indecision. Now, the challenge from this message today isn't just to go be weird. At this point, it's like, so just do whatever, like do weird things. No, it's not just to go upset the apple cart. Well, everything's going perfectly, so we're just going to blow it up. That's not it at all. Rather, the challenge today is that the apple cart and the weird factor, it can't even factor in when considering the call of God on our lives. It's not a factor. We can't even weigh, well, okay, we feel like the Lord's called us to do X. But, unless that but is scripture that the Lord quickened and brought into your life, like, but, I think that might just be the burritos I had last night. If it's not scripture, we can't weigh it in the balances. If it's fear of man, if it's concern, well, what are my folks going to think of this? You can't weigh that. Set it aside. Well, I don't know, like the Lord's called me to do this, but it's very different. No one is doing this. That's probably a good indication it's from the Lord. Now, we're going to get to the next part. How do you know it's God's call or God's voice? Because this is great. Like, this is exciting. It preaches good. Let's get excited. Let's stand out. Let's go tip over apple carts. Let's do ridiculous things. That's fine. But how do you know it's not just a whim? Like, it's fun to start new things or to try new things, but how do you know it's the voice of your Savior? It's fine and good to preach about stepping out in faith or not going along with the crowd, but if we don't know it's his voice calling us out, we're just a rogue actor. I'll tell you, we, myself included, need to learn to hear his voice on the little things. Jesus' words to his disciple were, disciples were progressive. He, didn't, he did not just wake up one day and say, go start the church. He didn't even send them the Holy Spirit for a long time. It was progressive. Starts out, cast your nets on the other side. Cast your nets. It's like, we're professional fishermen. What are, you, what are you telling us how to fish? Cast your nets on the other side. It's just a little, it's like learn to trust they cast their nets on the other side. Lo and behold, massive haul of fish. Huh. I think we can trust this guy a little bit. Come and follow me. Well, he was definitely right about the fish thing. We were wrong. We'll follow him. Now, keep in mind, we're planning on leaving him at some point because they did. We see that. Come and follow me. It led to spending time together, walking on the road, eating discussing scripture, asking questions. Jesus answered their most ridiculous and self-centered questions as they came. Who is gonna be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? <sighs> not you guys, just not you guys. What, but what about, what about John? Where was he gonna be? Just, he answered question after question after question. That led to, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? That led into, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Which led into, you guys just tarry in Jerusalem till you receive power from on high. Which led to sermon number one, 3,000 souls get born again. You see that progression? Jesus didn't call Peter and say, 
tomorrow, I want you to preach a message. And then when no one got born again, Jesus is like, I got nothing to do with him. No, he starts out, just cast your nets on the other side. Jesus didn't even say, I'll come help you. He just said, just cast your nets on the other side. After a night of fishing, cast your nets. Okay. And that led through years of relationship and time spent together, incrementally, progressively, that led to the point where Peter preached a sermon and 3,000 souls got born again. Learn to hear his voice in the little things. How do you know it's his voice, though? We live in the word of God. Know this. The voice of the Spirit will never contradict his word. Ever. Rather, it nearly always is explained by and the details filled in through the word of God. Now think about this. This is just a little, you guys know I like metaphors. I haven't used any real big metaphors today. This is a small one. But imagine that, <clears throat> imagine that I was to take a year and move away for a year. And, uh, but I promise to write you a letter every week and send it. So I send you, I send these letters every week for a, a year and at the end of that year, you hear something about me. But you haven't read any of those letters. You hear that I started up a casino on the Amazon River in South America. Now, if you haven't read any of those letters for a year, Markley's sitting there like, I wonder if the casino's profitable. It's like believable. After a year of no contact, it's like, I don't know where, I don't know what he got in. I have no idea what he got into or what, I have no idea. It's, somebody comes to you and they're like, hey, Tom, did you hear Isaac started a casino? It's like, might have. I don't know. I haven't seen him in a year. But imagine that Tom got those letters for a year, page and a half every week, detailed, what all is going on in my life, where I'm sharing the gospel, who I'm leading to the Lord, what I'm learning from Jesus, what I'm seeing in Scripture, the difficulties, sickness, maybe some hardship, some really good times. Little by little, I share that year with Tom in written form. In the end of that year, somebody come up, comes up to him at work and says, hey, did you hear McLaren started a casino? Tom would be like, yeah, that's a rumor, that's a lie. How do you know that? Well, I've been reading his letter. He's, Here, this is a stack. 53 letters. It's not him. I know what he's doing. I know where he's at. He's not even in South America. What? I've been reading his letters. I've been in communication with him. You see, it's just like that. And I know that's an elementary picture. But think about it. It's so simple. If we disregard or discard Scripture, we don't make, place a high value on Scripture in our lives, when somebody comes on the TV or on the radio or into your break room at work or wherever and, or podcast and they just say whatever about the Lord, if we're not reading his letters, we have no rubrics to measure whether that's from the Lord or whether that's just from that person's perspective. This is how we know him. This is how we know his voice. This is how we learn his character. It's important, as Paul instructed young Timothy, become a steward of the word of God. Learn to rightly divide it. Allow, get the word of God into our hearts. Allow the spirit of God to breathe upon it and reveal to us what is for us right now. But if we never get the word of God into us, 
the Spirit's got nothing to work with. And we're led about by every whim and every wind of doctrine. Hey, that sounds good. We'll follow that guy for a while. Hey, that sounds good. That's easy to listen to. I like that sermon. That was kind of fun. It doesn't line up with Scripture. It doesn't quicken the Scripture that's on the inside of you where it's going to lead down a dead-end road to nowhere land. But when we're in the Word of God, if you see, if you got your Bibles open, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 through 17, we see a little instruction a little encouragement, because I think today in our super fast world, in our tech bubble that we're living in, it's like I don't really have time to verify the context of Scripture. But if, if somebody shoots a sentence out at you and then they loosely associate it with a book of the Bible, maybe even they give you the chapter and verse, how many of us just take it? I'm guilty of it all the time. And then I got to go back. It's like, Lord, I'm not real sure that I verified any of that. I just like heard. Well, yeah, they said. It's like, you know, Second John says this. Like, maybe I should read that. I have like 11 copies of Second John in my possession and a few more on the cloud. I should just verify it. That's being a steward. That's not just taking someone. So I was like, well, they're a great preacher. And then this is one I appreciate. They've got a lot of people following them. Oh, Okay, probably still want to check that out. But they send an email devotion. It must be contextual if it's in an email devotion. <laughs> the police of the internet would not allow miscontextualized scripture to be sent out. This is dangerous stuff. We're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 through 17. This is Paul's second letter to Pastor Timothy, but you have carefully followed my doctrine, my manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, and perseverance. Verse 11, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, what persecutions I have endured. He's followed along with all of this. And out of them the Lord has delivered, out of all of them the Lord has delivered me. Verse 12, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, but evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Verse 15, and from your childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are what? Able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Verse 16, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The, the version of that that I memorized as a kid was thoroughly furnished unto all good works. And furnished and equipped, they're two similar words. I like the description of that, of both of them. When you look at, to be equipped, it's like there's a task at hand and I need the tools for it. And to be furnished, have you ever been in, ever, anybody here ever helped anybody move? It's like the worst call you ever get as a believer is somebody in the church is like, hey, you got a trailer, right? I did. <laughs> Who is this? If you've helped anybody move, you get to their new house and it's empty. It'll keep you dry in a rainstorm. It'll keep some things from freezing if the furnace is off even for a while. But it's not furnished. It's not a place to live. It's not a home yet. And then you carry in everything. And even, this is a kind of a 
It's an amplification of this. It's not just getting everything in the house. I've been a part of some moves where it's like, by the end of the day, it's like, we got your stuff in the house and we are done. I am, we're leaving. I'm sorry about the mess. <laughs> but it's like, well, there's a lot of stuff to carry in. And then, but then you go back six months, a year later, and all that stuff, it's not just piled up in boxes in the middle of the house. No, you walk in and it's like the couch. And then there's a little afghan laying on the back. And then there's pillows and there's chairs and there's dishes and there's, and it looks like it's, furnished. Things are where they belong for the purpose of that house caring for that family. This is what scripture will do for us. Scripture not only gives us the equipment we need for the task at hand, but it it helps everything find its place. It is the things that go in place in our lives. Does Does this picture make sense to anybody? I love that. The way that the apostle Paul wrote that. Verse 15, from childhood. This is one of the, and I'm not switching gears here, but one of the things I'm just so passionate about, the children's and the youth ministry at this church, even though I'm personally not involved in them, I'm a big fan of that. It's the biggest thing we can do so that we can have children that someday someone can write them a letter and say, the scriptures you've known from childhood, that starts here, starts in your homes with little kids. You've known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for the only thing that really matters. They're able to make you wise unto salvation. So that, and a lot of times we get to that and we just kind of forget about the first part we read there. So that when evil men, when imposters who grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived come in, we're able to discern and decipher and say, that's not from scripture. I know because I know scripture. And for some of Kids that are brought up in scripture, they're able to say, I've known that my whole life. So when someone comes in and calls a spade something other than a spade, we see it. The man of God may be complete, equipped, thoroughly furnished to every good work. Paul goes on another scripture to talk about good works which God has ordained for us to do. Ephesians 2, verse 10, he talks about that. It's God has things for us to do. Sometimes in the, I'll say the grace circles, we get into this like, well, I don't know, God, Jesus did everything, so there's nothing for us to do. No, he's got stuff for us. He got us stuff to do in Christ Jesus, and it's in the word of God, breathed upon by the spirit of God, that we become equipped for these good works, the things that he's called us to do. Now, we have to keep moving the third of what appears to be about six points. We're not gonna do all of these. But the third point I wanna get to, God's call on your life, it may be big, immediate, urgent in nature, or what I have found to be so often true, it may be subtle. It may be developing over the course of a fairly long passage of time. His call on your life may seem simple and small in the scope of this life, okay? But in the scope of eternity, it may be the biggest thing a human is capable of. You say, I'm not really sure I understand that. Okay. In the day that Paul was writing, uh, Rome was the world's superpower, They were the biggest of the biggest, the best of the best. They had emperors, and the emperors viewed themselves as deities. They saw themselves as gods. These emperors 
many of us know a few of their names. Like the month of August was named after Augustus Caesar. The month of July in our calendar was named after Julius Caesar. These guys thought they were pretty big deal. But you know, I bet most of you didn't know that this morning, those two months. Maybe some of you did. History people might have known it. But it's like, we're just like, it's July. It's the 4th of July. For Americans, it's like, Julius who? It's Independence Day. It's, we don't think of those things. But in the day that Paul was writing, do you think someone that was a part of the royal family was a bigger deal than Timothy? I would say Timothy was kind of a nobody. We don't know who his dad was. He wasn't royal lineage. He wasn't a somebody. We know his mom and his grandma's name just because they brought him up in the faith. That's all we know his name for. He wasn't like a huge deal. How many of you think Timothy's mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice, how many of you think that they saw themselves in the earthly view of life as a bigger influence for all of eternity than Julius Caesar. I mean, if you were Caesar, you set off with his head and the blade dropped before you were done with saying the word head. That's the kind of power, earthly power, those boys held. It's like Lois and Eunice, we don't know that they were really wealthy. We don't know their husband's names. We don't know what they did for a living. We don't know the color of their hair. We've never named a month in the calendar after them. In fact, not even, not even tons of people use those names anymore. Like they're not a big deal. But you know, in the kingdom of heaven, the call that was on their life was greater than any emperor that's ever existed because they brought up Timothy in faith. Timothy was brought up by his mom and his grandma, taken under the wing of Paul, and pastored and shepherded the early church, which those Roman emperors tried their darndest to snuff out and were incapable of doing so. 2,000 years later, the empire of Rome is leveled and the church is alive and well. Do you see this picture? When the, what the Lord has called us to, it may look small in the world, Lois and Eunice, it's like, I'm just going to raise up this little boy, and we're just going to teach him the scripture. We're going to teach him to trust Jesus, and that's all we're going to do. We get to the end of our life, our heart thump thumps, and we're with the Lord, and that's it. Or is it? They're still impacting today. Revivals all over the world, people getting born again all over the world are referencing stuff that their son and grandson was written to by the Apostle Paul. People that he shepherded influenced us today and our great, 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 great grandkids. Kingdom impact is way different than earthly perspective. They passed on. Second Timothy chapter one is where you find that. We're not gonna look at it on account of time right now. If you wanna look at it, that's where... Uh, Paul references Lois and Eunice. They were two of the most influential folks in the early church because they passed on what Paul refers to as genuine faith. I talk about these guys a lot. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's parents. We have no information about them at all. Like, it's only because of our understanding of how humans procreate that we know they had parents. 
There's no reference in scripture to their parents. But I tell you what, their parents brought them up in faith, instilled an understanding, a proper understanding of God's presence with them so that we're still talking about them today. We're still impacted by them today. The last person in scripture, uh, one reference, Joseph, Jesus' earthly dad. At Christmas time, is the only time we ever talk about Joseph. We don't know much about him. We know he wasn't living anymore when Jesus was crucified. We don't know why. We don't know if his business succeeded or failed. We don't know anything about his earthly life. But what an important role. What an important unsung role. The call of God on his life was subtle. Train up Jesus in scripture. That's all he could do. He didn't have any other, he was a carpenter. He didn't, have, I, he didn't have a bunch of degrees. He wasn't a Pharisee. He wasn't a religious leader. He didn't have a bunch of scrolls. He may have not even been able to read. We don't know what all his mental capacity was. He was a tradesman. He was a carpenter. He just did his thing and he trained up Jesus and his brothers and sisters in the word of God. The call of our lives, the call on our lives may not be to be the mover and the shaker. It may be to raise one up. Or three. Maybe to support one. Maybe to encourage one. We tend in our culture to idolize, to idolize the perceived successful or influential folks. Often forgetting that someone taught that person to walk, someone taught that person to talk and change their diapers. Someone was there with them and telling them not to when they wanted to quit. I think about these people more the older I get. The longer I walk with Jesus, the more I see him calling out and equipping the people in the margins. The people that nobody knows their name. The people that maybe you're here today and you feel like you're a failure. Maybe you're listening and you're like, I'm not doing anything for the Lord. But you're influencing somebody. Little by little, what the Lord has given you, just like a stamp. Anybody remember stamps? I remember the stamps when I was a kid. You got the little thing, you open up and you stick the thing on, and then you can make that imprint on whatever you want. And as a good, uh, responsible child, you take sheets of blank paper and cover them with the same stamp. I think about that picture. The Lord has put an imprint. You're all created. We're created in the image of God. He's put that imprint on you in very possibly the most important thing you can do is make that imprint on the next generation or a coworker or a friend or a parent. We, we sometimes, we get into, there's an inertia, there's like an energy of motion that tends to follow big names. Isn't there? Like you hear so-and-so sing. I'm going to hear so-and-so sing. Even in our small communities, we can get this, like, well, I'm going to hear, did you hear so-and-so's coming here to speak? And we get this energy, it's like, ooh, that's exciting, that's exciting, that's flashy. But we so often forget, and that's good, I'm not, don't hear that like I'm upset with any of that. I'm just, there's a support system for every mover and shaker that ever has existed. There is a support system made up of many people that are equally important in the eternal scope 
taking the imprint that the Lord has placed on our lives and placing it on the next generation or the next person. The last thing this morning. Last point of that one, sorry. Sometimes the call of the Lord on your life for a moment, it doesn't have to be forever, but for a moment, is to be there for someone when they want to quit. That's like a, I think of Jesus and Peter all the time. I love Jesus and Peter's relationship. I've shared with you many times, Peter's like my spirit animal. Not that he was an animal, but man, I can really relate to, as I see his, he's like excited, and then it's like, whoa, I don't know what's happening, so I'm gonna just back off. And, and I love that I see Jesus there for him when he wanted to quit. When he quit looking at Jesus when he was walking on water, he took his eyes off of Jesus. That's quitting. He quit for a moment. Obviously, the stakes are pretty high when you're walking on stormy seas and your means of staying buoyant fail you. It's the stakes got real big, real fast. Who did Peter reach out to? The boat? He had just been on the boat, and that wasn't going that well. He steps out of the boat, takes some steps towards Jesus, takes his eyes off of Jesus, ready to quit on the thing, obviously, because it's like these waves are definitely bigger than Jesus, who just walked across the whole Sea of Galilee on them. He begins to fail and Jesus reaches out his hand for him. And you see that over and over in Jesus and Peter's relationship. Sometimes the biggest thing the Lord has equipped us for, the big thing we can do, again, there's a difference between the scope of earth and the scope of eternity. It might be to be there, to answer when your phone rings, to reply to a text or an email, to not, have you ever, anybody been here, this is, I'm not asking for a show of hands because somebody probably feel guilty or bad, but have you ever been in a, walking through a store, I think of Walmart or the supermarket, and you got your headset, like your eye fixed, you're fixed on the, where you're going. I gotta get milk, eggs, whatever else, and I am going home. I'm done for the day. And you're marching through the aisles, glancing because you don't remember where everything's at, and then you see somebody, and it's like, Anybody ever, don't, I've done that, but just one time, <laughs> where you pass, and it's like, oh, I'm going to keep going, or I better answer the phone. I've never done that, but I've seen other people do it, where they didn't have a real phone call, but they picked up their phone, and they kept walking. Sometimes it's just to take a minute, when I've got to get the eggs and the milk, and i got to get going, and I see somebody I haven't seen for a while to stop and ask them, how you doing? Is there anything I can pray for you with? About? How's your family? Because when we give people our time, we're ascribing value to them. And sometimes that's all the encouragement somebody needs to keep going. I'm worth somebody stopping on their whirlwind Walmart run and saying hello and asking about my life? We can ascribe value to people. The call of the Lord on our lives can be as simple as being there for someone when they want to quit. After all, <clears throat> our lives don't belong to us anyways. Today, in this culture, more than ever, but it's been, it's been building for a long time, it's kind of always been innate in humanity. Um, when, and, and in the event that Jesus hadn't died, 
and hadn't been resurrected and hadn't ascended on high, this would be the way to live. It's a lot of uh, things that happened that if they, they would have to have not happened for this to be a legitimate way to live. But our society has sold us this bill of goods that it's, it's your life. You need, you need to be happy with your life. You should be happy. You should be fulfilled. You should be fulfilled. We could preach a sermon about it. We could make some scriptures up. We could rip some out of context. We, you should be fulfilled in your life. The Lord wants you to be fulfilled. That's fine. But maybe what he called you for isn't super fulfilling. We've been sold this bill of goods that it's your life. When scripture tells us, Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. My life is not my own. I was bought with a price. I no longer, it's not about what, what makes me happy, what fulfills me, what makes, puts the most money in my pockets. What, that's not my, I don't get that anymore. If I want to live like that, I shouldn't have got born again. I can just go do whatever makes me happy, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we may die. That may happen. We may not be here. We're not going to be here on this earth in its current form forever. But if our perspective it's so much of Christianity, it's like we want to kind of do, let's do like all of the things. Like we could, do, we could do the crucify with Christ thing on Sundays, but then we can do whatever makes me happy for all of my big life decisions. It's like I don't, I'm not sure I'd be super fulfilled in ministry, Lord. See, I, I, I would rather do, it's like, wait a second, I thought you were crucified with Christ. I thought, it's you that lives again? We're doing CPR on our dead flesh. It's like we got to keep us and our dreams alive. When the Lord's called us to do something, he's placed something on us. This all stems from an improper valuation of the cross and what all was at stake there. It is practically very unfortunate that we are unable to conceptualize eternity. Practically speaking, I understand why we don't. But practically speaking, it would be really good if we could get a glimpse of eternity and understand what it means to be right with God. How many of you know if we could see just a little ways into eternity, our understanding of being right with the Father would become highlighted in a whole new way. But we don't have a concept of eternity. It's like, I don't know, I mean, it's like forever kind of, like maybe heaven, is that, heaven? Is that eternity? Or I, we don't have a, it has no beginning and no end. The creator of life itself and all the galaxies and all the planets and everything we see, gravity was God's idea. Color was God's idea. Vision, our ability to see, that was his idea. He created by his word all of that. And you and I are legally right with him forever. Oh, so my fulfillment for the next 30 or 40 years is not super relevant? Yeah. Yeah. Forever we're right with him. Now, we've been given gifts, and I completely agree with what Dan said. God's going to use those things on the inside of you. We just can't get lost in them. We can't get lost in the things that he's given us that are gifts, that are abilities, that are passions. He's given us those things. He'll use them, but they're not the point. We've made them the point. We've made the things that God wants to use in our lives. He's given us things like, well, I, I really kind of enjoy talking to people. It's like, well, I only want to talk to people if it makes me feel good. It's like, no, that was just the gift God gave me to use. That's not the point of my life. It's not the point of our existence. The more we understand Jesus' death, burial, 
resurrection and ascension and what it means for our lives, for humanity at large, the less our earthly stuff factors into our decisions. It just doesn't matter that much. This is part of what I believe Jesus intended. It's not what we've done with it all the time, but I think it's a big part of what Jesus intended by instituting the Lord's Supper. Because he knew we were gonna eat. He's like, these folks are gonna eat all the time. I'm gonna give them something in that that reminds them a tangible reminder of my sacrifice to keep at the forefront of their lives. Not to make a religious exercise out of it, but rather as a stark reminder of what was done at the cross to keep us free from getting tangled up in materialism, social pressure, fear of man, fear of death, etc., etc. There's a few other things. Come back to Jesus and Moses. In the beginning, we started talking about Jesus. He was in the synagogue, and man with the withered hand was before him. It was well within his power and well within his call to heal him. But there was man present, and they had applied some pressure. You sure you want to do that? Because we're going to plot against you if you do that. He was frustrated by their hardness of heart. He was discouraged with them. But you don't see him hesitate. If anything, there's a momentary hesitation, but just for emphasis. <laughs> you see, it, it's kind of like, step forward, and then he kind of pauses, just so that all the Pharisees, and all the religious leaders, everyone that wanted to throw stones at him for it could see, withered hand, healed hand. If anything, there was a hesitation for emphasis. And then you see, and we're not gonna read all of it, we're actually, we're just gonna reference it. Exodus chapter three and four, if you wanna make a note, something to read, look up. This is the call of Moses by God through the burning bush. The Lord provides supernatural signs, starting with the burning bush itself. And an audible voice. It's like, an audible voice would be kinda cool. Obviously, it does not have quite the weight in the natural as what we think it would. It didn't immediately convince Moses to listen to God's call. He had, rather, he had question after question after question. How is this going to work? I can't talk. I don't think I'm the guy for this. What about the sheep? You could just, it's on and on. He's like, I don't think this is a good thing. But most of his reasons and questions, in the natural, they made sense. It's like, this probably isn't the best guy. Why wouldn't you, Lord, like, do you have anyone that could speak better? Like, let's do that. But when we factor in that it was Jehovah who called him and Jehovah who said, I'm going with you. All I need from you is to listen to me and do what I said. Oh, well then none of his excuses make any sense. When you factor that in, none of them make sense. And yet, by Exodus 3.18, you see how confident Moses is in God's call in his life. Can you bring that one up, Jane? We'll look at this one verse. Exodus chapter three, verse 18. 
This is just, I mean, Moses is brimming with confidence. Then they will heed your voice, and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt. You shall say to him, oh, this is the wrong, I'm at the wrong verse. Where's the one where he's talking to his father-in-law? I thought it was 318. Maybe it's in four. Let me find it. This is an important one I want us to see. Is everybody okay? I'll find it. Give me a moment. Exodus chapter 3 or 4. 418. I was off by one digit. That's the home teaching. Verse 18. So Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law. This is after all of his conversation between him and God at the burning bush. And he said to him, please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. I'm sorry, did, did we miss something in three and four? It's pretty evident they're alive. God just called you to go deliver them out of the land of Egypt. I don't think this is a question of whether they're alive, Moses. What are you doing? He was still being governed, and you see this all through his ministry, and I love Moses. I'm, I'm excited to meet him one day. But this is where you're at after the conversation with the burning bush. The Lord's call on your life. You've agreed, and now we see here, clearly it was a concession. Not, I mean, he didn't agree with excitement. It's like, I guess I'll go, Lord. You've taken every argument I've had and turned it on its head, so I'll go. But when he goes to Jethro, he's like, uh, I think I should go see, check on my family. I don't know if they're still alive. What? They're very alive. You just spoke to their God. And he said, go deliver them, not go see if they're alive. Do you see the contrast between Moses here and Jesus in Mark chapter 3? Jesus was not affected by the pressure of the fear of man. What do you think Moses weighed in on? Why do you think he didn't go to Jethro and say, listen, I just talked to Jehovah, the King of kings and Lord of lords. I talked to him from a burning bush, and he said, I'm the guy, I'm the general, I'm going to go and lead them out of the land of Egypt. Because he's going to look like an idiot. There's no way Jethro's going to believe him. He may take him to the hospital. He may say, you need some medication. I don't think that's, you're not, that is not, you didn't have that conversation. So instead of stepping out in faith, just as we see Jesus in Mark chapter three, he's like, I'm just gonna do what the Lord called me to do, confidently. He didn't hide it, he didn't say, let's go out back behind the synagogue and I'll hear, heal your hand. Jesus, he said, stretch out your hand so everybody sees it's withered. Moses did not have that same kind of confidence. It's so easy to end up right where Moses is at, where we're like, okay, Lord, I will try to do the thing that you called me to do, but let's just not tell anybody about it right now. Let's just sort of keep it to ourselves. We'll say we're going wherever the Lord called us for a different reason. That's less weird. That's less stand out. Because there's safety in that. If it doesn't pan out, well, I was just checking on my relatives. Nobody got freed from Egypt. It didn't pan out. It, it's like, there's a lot of protection for Moses in this statement to Jethro. Is there not? It's like, it, there's no pressure. It doesn't have to be anything other than he went, he saw they're still alive, and he came back. He can still quit. The whole way from Midian to Egypt, he can still quit. 
and go back without any, it's like, if he would have told Jethro, I'm going, the Lord called me to lead my family, which is possibly numbering in the millions at this point, out of Egypt, and then he comes back two years later with three more goats? Like, I found some goats. Where's, the, where's your brethren? Well, that didn't work out. But this way, he could, he's, we, how often does the Lord quicken a call on our lives, and it's like, yeah, but let's not tell anybody. I just, let's just keep, we'll just keep it. You know, it's like, we could just say something else. I just want to encourage us. The Lord, his call on our lives is very seldom to fit in. He's called each of us to something, each of you. Now, you might be sitting there, I hate to say, I don't hate to say it, I struggle to say the Lord's called you to something because I feel like in this day and age, and maybe I'm the only one that feels this way, I feel like all of us immediately, like if I was sitting out there and someone was speaking, they're like, the Lord's called you to something, I'm immediately like, I'm gonna start something. It's gonna be like hundreds of people and like, that's not what I mean by this. It may be that, but like we talked about, it might be the Lord's calling you to be a parent, to be a teacher, to be an employee, to be where you are, but to be there in proper perspective, in the scope of eternity, weighing your words, weighing your conversations, weighing the opportunities in front of you through the scope and the lens of eternity and not through the scope and the lens of our 401k or our pleasure, our momentary, passing, fleeting desires of this life. I just pray, I desire that if the Lord touches a part of you and calls you to something. Go forth with boldness. Step out. The Lord's got this, uh, he's got this way about him that he's faithful. And uh, sometimes, there's a few of you in here that can, could confirm this with stories if we pass the mic around, which we're not gonna do. There's been times I've heard from the Lord and it was not from the Lord. But I stepped out different times. And he was faithful. He was faithful. There's a freedom that comes. We talked about it in the beginning. When we, we think sometimes that if we're going to start something, it's got to go how we plan, how we initially see it. Take that pressure off. It is not on us to provide the increase. One plants, another waters. The Lord is the one who gives the increase. On the work of our hands, in Jesus' name, the things he's called us to, it is the Lord who quickens the increase. A little further in the book of Mark, you get to the sower and the seed. Jesus is talking about planting seeds and how the sower sows the word. And then he goes on and he says, once the seed's planted, the farmer sleeps and rises night and day. And he knoweth not how, but the seed grows, produces a harvest. This last, I don't know, 20 some days it hasn't rained. And I farm light dirt. For those of you that don't know, means I need rain. It's supposed to rain. It's the sun. I see the sun, which is concerning. I was really believing for rain by 11, and it's 11.53 and dry. 
it's coming. But in the moments, the last three weeks, uh, I was pretty sure I was, I was not going to have a crop on one of my farms. I was like, it's not going to be nothing. And I remember driving by, I was talking to somebody on the phone, and I was talking about how, you know, Mark 4 talks about sleeps and rises night and day, and he knoweth not how, but the grows. And I'm like, I knoweth not how, and I don't know if it will grow with. And uh, little by little, over the last week, almost every row is up out of the ground. And last night, I was looking, and I was, uh, this was not a super spiritual moment on my part. I was not thinking about talking to you guys today or in light of eternity or the scope or any of that. I was just looking at the rows, and I'm like, I actually, in that moment, I'm like, how in the world is this row out of the ground? It was in dry dirt seven days ago, and they're up, little soybeans. They're not real happy, but they're up. And then in that second when I said that, it was like immediately Mark 4 flooded back in. I'm like, he knoweth not how. And I have slept, not great, but I've slept, and I've risen, and I don't know how, and they grow. It's the Lord that brings the increase. I don't understand how the seed works. I don't understand. There's something in it that when it gets in the dirt and it gets a little moisture, catalyzes and it grows. So take the pressure off. Plant the seeds. Plant the fields that the Lord's called you to plant. Carry the gospel wherever the Lord, speak the truth that the Lord has called you to speak. And let the Lord take care of the increase. Release the pressure of I've got to make this into something. Let the Lord make it into something. If you would stand with me this morning, I'd like to dismiss us with a declaration. You guys have all been very patient. Thank you very much. I had a, a little, I realized I bit off more than I could effectively chew, but I'd like to dismiss us with a declaration this morning. As sons and daughters of the king, we declare that we are blessed we are blessed and highly favored. Going in and coming out, we declare that the promises of God in Christ Jesus, they are yes and they are amen to the glory of God the Father. In light of the gospel of Jesus Christ and in the scope of eternity, we know that no weapon formed against us can succeed in the mission for which it was formed. Certainly, this natural world isn't fixed yet and we are certain to face hardships and difficulties, even persecution for the sake of the gospel. But none of this shall move us from what God has called us to. We need not understand everything to walk in confident faith in the one thing. The saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, able to deliver us into right standing with the Lord for all of eternity. It is this reality today we proclaim to our world. We step with the boldness of lions representing the Lion of Judah in our world, knowing that greater is he who is within us than he who is in the world. Bow with me if you would. Father, I thank you so much that your word is greater, that your word is higher, that your blood is pure. Father, I thank you that you have welcomed us into your kingdom because of our faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you that you are always guiding us and instructing us through your word. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you are here helping us to understand, breathing upon the word of God. Father, I thank you for different understandings that you've quickened on the inside of various people in this room. Lord, I thank you for the callings, the giftings and the callings that you have placed 
on the inside of each of us that you will never repent or take back, change your mind about. Father, I pray boldness right now over this body. Boldness to step out in faith, keeping their eyes fixed on you, Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Equipped with the word of God, that our house of faith may be furnished, that our hands are equipped for the task that you've called us to. Father, I pray a blessing over this body in Jesus' name. For all of these things, amen. You guys are dismissed. Have a wonderful week. Thank you again for your patience.